0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It is Triple R and when you're a creative type or even a contractor, where do you work? There are lots of jobs that don't have a standard workplace setting, which means lots of people are working from home or in the library or in cafes, but increasingly co-working spaces are popping up around the place and they're no longer just for tech-focused entrepreneurs. Taylor Tran is a consultant and an author. He's uh, keeping tabs on co-working sites around Melbourne and it's really great to have you in here, Taylor, because I think more of us are wanting to have a workspace and don't necessarily have... A workplace so um, I mean is that what's driving a lot of these um, co-working spaces that we're seeing in Melbourne?
1: Well from my research um, what I've found was that uh, after the GFC there was an explosion of co-working spaces and um, so it's probably a trend around um, you know people leaving uh, regular work and starting on their own business which is pretty much the case for me
2: and, I mean, there's kind of a, a stereotype and an image of, of co-working spaces, as Carly mentioned in the introduction, of kind of being a bunch of tech-savvy people, maybe with a futsal table or table tennis table, kind of kind of sipping coffee, but um, that's not kind of necessarily the only type of co-working space around, is it? They're, they're quite diverse.
1: It's quite diverse, and those tech spaces get a lot of airtime, um, where I'm in, I'm Probably your usual um, freelancers, and I interact with that uh, group quite a lot. And uh, there's that group as well, and there's tech, and then there's another place um, which is all about gaming and, and video and creative. And and then there's uh, another uh, spot which is about um, like a maker. Um, space where, you know, it's about digital printing and so forth.
0: So so there's lots of different kinds, but I suppose what makes um, a space a co-working space versus just a, an office space or, or a shared office space?
1: I think the key thing I look for is whether it has a community manager or not and someone actively building a community. So that's a little bit different to a landlord who's not there and it's all about collecting the rent. Uh, so that's probably the key definition for me is whether it has an active community manager.
0: And what do they do, those, those people?
1: Some of these smaller places, the community manager is actually a business in their own right. And I think the main thing that they do is connect people and uh, uh, think about how, how uh, to find complementary members to support the community and run events and bring in extra information that would help uh, the community grow as well as the businesses within it. Are are they very expensive? Um, They're not too bad. So I think it's a a few hundred a month would be on average and and less than that if you don't want to be there too often. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's quite reasonable uh, if you want somewhere that... um, um, uh, you know, it's obviously, not working from home, getting a bit of interaction, uh, getting information, and getting some inspiration in, with your business. So, it's actually quite useful um, to uh, to interact with other people, and it pretty much saves time. So, you could actually save months by um, you know talking to people about your ideas and 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 go from there and as well as the network and the business that you actually get from working in co-working spaces
0: can we talk about some sort of practicalities so taylor you've actually visited a lot of these spaces and you've actually written a book about it. it's called innovation melbourne a guide to melbourne's entrepreneur ecosystem so you really actually have gone in and and checked them out are they open plan because i think um a lot of you know workplaces i work in a, an open plan workplace and you really do have a lot of you know sound coming from other people's spaces but when you're a team that doesn't matter so much as if you're working on quite distinct projects are they are they noisy or what you know what's the sort of setup
1: um they're not always open plan they're usually open plan so probably say 50 or even up to 70 80 percent of them are open plan but uh most of them also have private uh, offices and meeting rooms and so forth so it really depends on your requirement um, and you can find one that would suit you. So, um, again, if uh, if the community manager is proactive and thinking about the people within it, um, then you know they can accommodate um, the you know, the needs of um, of those different businesses
2: and um you mentioned that these co-working spaces have particularly kind of popped up in the wake of the the global financial crisis and i've just sort of seen them driving around um you know around the sort of inner north of melbourne you've also spent some time in sydney are they similarly popular over there
1: some of the largest one are in sydney um so i just moved back from sydney um uh, that was a couple of years ago. When I, uh, like I said in the book, I didn't know about these until until I'd started looking into them over the last year or so. And and uh, like I said, at the, be- at the beginning I thought there were, well, I thought there were a couple or five yeah. at best, but in doing the research, uh, there are actually 70, over 70 around Melbourne. Uh, and everyone I spoke to... Um, including some of the people in the industry didn't know that there were 70-plus uh, around Melbourne. Uh, and that also includes... Um, I also went to you know, Bendigo, Ballarat, Geelong uh, to visit the co-working spaces there.
0: Wow, um, Taylor Tran is with us, um, he's a consultant and author and we're speaking about co-working spaces and I see, I mean, there's that many around that you've, you've uncovered but then they're not all in the CBD, they're actually dotted around the suburb, there's some in, in the west and in the south of Melbourne, maybe tell us where the geographic spread is.
1: Um, so uh, a lot of them are in the city, actually in the book I I split them out for people, so you've got you know, CBD, north, east, west, south. Um, and the north is actually there's about twenty in the north, um, as I define them, and um, and oh, just uh, rough memory about about that much in the city as well. But the ones in the, closer to the city are obviously larger, uh, and then and then rough numbers. Uh, like that, about you know, fifteen twenty in the east and in the south. There's probably about five in the in the west.
0: Gee, that's really and and so what are the kinds of facilities that you should expect if you're looking for uh, co-working spaces? I imagine internet connection and fast internet connection is something that is a sale selling point.
1: A kettle as well, I imagine.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think that's the
1: minimum requirement. <laughs> um, minimum requirement. Um, uh, look, it varies, but definitely <laughs> internet for sure and a desk. Um, I think, like I said, I think the main thing you should look for is uh, the quality of the community manager and and the network that you'll build out of that because that's the main purpose of uh, co-working spaces about com- building community of practice. Um, and uh, in terms of what to expect, you know, it really varies. So you... Um, and the book might help um, because it gives a summary of each of them because um, uh, you've got to know what your tribe is, you know, whether it's the creative, whether it's a technical or whether it's just freelancing. Um, so it's important to think about that because if you, I guess, if you walked into the wrong one, you feel completely out of place. Mm.
2: And I guess, that, I mean, you've spoken about some of the benefits to individuals of being involved in, in this sort of community, community and having a, a co-working space to go on and work on your particular project. But from your research, have you heard from kind of, I don't know, great kind of entrepreneurial uh, projects that have, that have come out of directly being involved in a, in a co-working space?
1: Oh, look, there are thousands and um, I, uh, it's hard enough for me to remember them all mm. in terms of co-working spaces, let alone the, all the projects that I hear uh, at these places. So it's quite amazing. Uh, journey not only to uh, talk to the co-working spaces, but also um, uh, you know hear about the, the individual businesses within it. Um, I might mention a couple of, uh, in general, but you know um, in the north actually there is a co-working space with childcare, so uh, it's called uh, Habi Hubbub in um, uh, and in Preston, and so that's actually the first one in, in Australia that's got uh, childcare, so that's mm. quite interesting. Um, the other one is, um, you know, there's, uh, there's another place which is looking into um, Bitcoin and, uh, and the future of money. So that's quite interesting in terms of an initiative as well. And you might have all heard about, you know, 99design and, and Kogan and all that sort of stuff. That's, that's a few years back. Uh, there's so many Uh, exciting stuff going on and the other thing that is happening as well are all the universities are setting up precincts so um um uh, what can i think about it so melbourne university is, is setting up one monash uh rmit everyone
0: yeah, and I mean, big corporations have also set up these spaces for, for their customers or their clients to come and work when they're travelling through Melbourne or Sydney or other cities in the world. So this idea of providing these facilities so people can set up a temporary workstation or, or a more permanent one is is not just being stemmed from a, from a good community manager, but it's more broad as well.
1: That's right. So I w- was going to cover some of the corporate ones, but then I... Uh, looked into it, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to do another book on <laughs> on that specifically. So all the corporations getting into them as well. So there's a, a list of them in the book that, you know, I won't go through. Um, and then uh, apart from that, there are also precincts as well. So there, there's a northern innovation precinct, the southeastern innovation precincts. Uh, like I said, the north is actually quite active, so I think that's an, the interesting insight that I've found is uh, it's actually quite entrepreneurial. Um, you know where we are in the north.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean a long time ago I was part of a similar type workspace aimed at not for profits, and I wonder if that kind of um, type of type of organisation is catered for, whether you've got a not-for-profit and then, you know, as you say, you've got to find your tribe. Um, Do we have that diversity around the kind of business that you're in as well?
1: We do. Um, So there's a space called Dimension 5, which is um, targeted at not-for-profits, which is open recently. And, you know, there's so many other around and even some of these co-working spaces um, uh, have a, a, you know, social enterprise feel to them uh, as well.
0: Yeah. And I, I wonder if what, what it says about the kind of where we're at with work. Do, I mean, what does this tell you, Taylor, when you're looking around? That there's so many different options out there and they are popping up all over the place. And I imagine people are listening to this thinking that they're wanting to set one of these up close close to home, perhaps in the sort of outer suburbs, even where people can avoid having to commute all the way into the city all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, you, what, what is this telling us about yeah. our way
1: of working. So in the book, I, um, I talk a little bit about the future of work and there's, um, for example, there's uh, a recent report from CEDA which talks about over the next 10 to 20 years about half the workforce will be self-employed. Uh, most of that because of uh, um, digital and uh, robotics. And um, and I didn't know this, but, you know, just looking at um, ABS stats, half about 2 million people actually leave their job every year and and most of that is actually voluntary um you think it's about redundancy but it's actually voluntary so there is a strong trend to people doing their own stuff and that's pretty much enabled by technology
2: Mm. and if you someone out there who wants to get involved in a co-working space but maybe doesn't know where to start can you just go along and and kind of shop around go and have a tour of them and and have a look or do you need to kind of set up an appointment generally how does that work
1: um, it would be good to call in advance or send an email. Um, you can also um, go onto the website, innovationmelbourne.com.au. I've listed them all now for free for everyone to have a look. Uh, obviously, buy the book. Um, it's only, you know, 30 bucks, um, uh, which will give you a summary. A lot of them, uh, you know, if you go on the website, um, you can look at all the links and I think you'll get a pretty good description of them. Uh, but call it advance, that way, uh, you know, it's more organised. Look, I have have to say that some of these places the community manager is not there all the time so it's probably important to to arrange a time Mm.
0: well um thank you so much for coming in and telling us more about it taylor tran has written a book um innovation melbourne and you can head to that website innovationmelbourne.com.au, and find a listing of all the different co-working spaces around the place and um i imagine um get some insights into how these spaces are working if you're interested in setting up your own thanks so much for coming into triple r thank you And when it comes to filming police incidences, what are your rights? Can you film your interactions with them? Can you film them at work on the street? Millions of people have watched the distressing Diamond Reynolds mobile phone-captured video in the aftermath of a police shooting of her boyfriend in the US. And this, I think, has raised some questions about what are our rights here in Australia with regards to filming police incidences. Anthony Kelly, who's um, with the the Flemington and Kensington Community League, centre he's the police accountability project manager there and he has some advice on this and we've asked him to to join us and um thanks anthony it's really great to have you um back on triple r and i think um people are starting to wonder about their rights when it comes to using mobile phones to um to film police interactions is something that you get lots of questions about
3: yeah, we do. It's something that's, that's still relatively new, even though we've had the ability to film for a you know, decade or so, it's uh, you now ubiquitous. And it constantly raises questions about our um, about rights to, to, to film in public. And, and it's also, there's been confusion amongst police, of course, um, as well as what they've polled members of the public. Uh, so, in a nutshell, uh, everyone has the right to film in public as long as the camera's out in the open and visible. Uh, essentially you have the right to um, to film in public and that
2: includes instances that involve police officers. So what should you keep in mind, I guess, if, if you're um, you know, witnessing something that maybe perhaps looks a bit dubious? Um, obviously there'd be sort of fairly tense circumstances if someone's being erected or being um, arrested or there's violence involved. What should sort of people keep in mind if they're thinking about filming police officers in their line of duty?
3: Yeah, absolutely right. So their their own safety is really important. We've had incidences where police have become very aggressive towards um, uh, people nearby taking video um, footage of a particular incident. They will attempt to control the space and they may well ask people to move away from a particular incident. Now, a lot of that is uh, reasonable and, you know, they require a bit of space. There there is a risk of um, being charged with hinder. Uh, or disobeying a police directive, so people need to bear those um, in mind. And what we suggest is that people keep a safe distance. Uh, if asked to move back by police, they have to move back, um, to stay calm, but to it's OK to keep filming from that safe distance. Um, so it's important not to get in the way or get too close for their own safety, but uh, it's certainly possible to keep filming.
0: And I imagine uh, that a lot of people are filming incidences that don't involve the police, but then police might um, turn up later on. How valuable is this material? Um, I suppose in in being submitted to a court, Anthony.
3: Well, in in a legal context, any sort of ev- it's any sort of evidence. Um, intrinsically valuable. So whether it be CCTV footage or um, civilian footage that's taken on a mobile phone, it can have value. Um, often, of course, it's it only tells part of the story. It uses, um elements or it's, uh, um, it could be after the effect. So some of it's more useful than others. Uh, but sometimes it can be really impactful and, and critical to, uh, to a case. Um, the citizen um, uh, complaints... Uh, review board in, uh, uh, in in New York that uh, oversees uh, the complaints against police misconduct of New York Police Department officers has attributed the rise in successful prosecutions against police to the increasing availability of, uh, you know, citizen tape and mobile phone footage of police misconduct.
2: And um, a, a number of years ago, you, uh, with a number of men who you were working with lodged a, a complaint, uh, a racial profiling compa- complaint, um, you know, saying that the, the Victoria Police were, um, had sort of uh, you know, racially profiled them and they'd sort of been subjected to searches and stuff. Um, that's led to changes in the Victoria Police's practice. Where are we currently at with, with that sort of awareness in the police force here in Victoria?
3: things are definitely changing over the last three years since that case there's been uh, clearer policies now implemented by Victoria police that prohibit uh, and uh, define and prohibit uh, racial and other forms of discriminatory profiling and there's also improved training at the academy level about bias and um, um, uh, both conscious and unconscious forms of bias that can play into the decisions whether to stop and search someone and uh, there's also been the trial of a receding um, process which involves uh, police giving a simple uh, card or a paper receipt to people that they stop on the street. And that's something that uh, has been received favourably by young people in particular, and something that we'd like to see rolled out across the state um, from this point on. It's, um, it's been trialled throughout last year, and now the evaluation of that report is sitting on the Chief Commissioner's desk, and so we're hoping to hear at some point
0: over the next year uh, whether or not that, you know, that this receding process will be
3: rolled out across the state.
0: Can you explain what that is a little more? Anthony, I'm not aware. It, 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 were you saying receipt then? We've got a bit of a ropey line, so it's hard to... to is that a sure. receipt receipt yeah, process?
3: Yeah, so receipt. It's just like if you... Um, there's a record of a stop, essentially, that the police have as part of their recording processes, but we believe that... People who are stopped also have a right to have a record of that stop. And what it means is that it has simple information about where they were stopped and simple information about why they were stopped and where they can go if they have any um, complaints or issues with, with being stopped. So you might have heard on the TV coverage of the Black Lives Matter rally uh, yesterday on Sunday that um, local people, uh, particularly young black men, were complaining how they were... Um, have been stopped several times in the past week or stopped multiple times a week. And that's a really common um, uh, uh, anecdotal evidence that we hear all the time. Receding gives uh, people who were stopped, uh, particularly on multiple occasions, a chance to record and um, collect evidence that, they've, that they're being stopped multiple times. It's, uh, it's a very common now... Uh, uh, Sort of anti-racial profiling measure that's been adopted in the states and in the UK and, and also in, um, in uh, Canada in some cases, some areas. And we'd like to see it rolled out across Victoria.
2: And you mentioned the, the Black Lives Matter rally yesterday, which, of course, attracted um, a lot of people to the Central CBD. And it's really kind of been spurred on by the, the recent distribution of, of footage of the, um, the two men in the US, uh, Elton Sterling, who was shot and killed in Louisiana by a police officer, and also Philando Castile, shot in Minnesota. Do you see these sorts of events as, um, I guess, resonating with the people you work with through the Flemington and Kensington Legal Centre and the Police Accountability Project?
3: Yeah, for sure. the uh, The context is um, significantly different, as you can imagine, presence of guns and gun culture and so forth, and the US con- the US context. But a lot of the underlying dynamics are very similar. Uh, communities feel like they're being discriminated against and targeted, and policing biases um, of uh, of a racial nature are common. In police forces throughout the world and they're certainly common here the policing of our indigenous communities uh the policing of newly arrived communities over decades now has reflected um discriminatory racialized practices and that's something that victoria police are starting to recognize they're starting to approach properly but we're also maintain continual concerns about
2: And there seemed to be, uh, I mean, at least a a subtle pushback against that change. If we cast our minds back to March, where there was, um, you know, a group of youth, many of whom were of African descent, who ran through the CBD and kind of caused trouble um, around the time of the the Moomba Parade. And there seemed to be kind of the language of law and order, and police, um, I guess, feeling like they they shouldn't stop and search people on a whim, as potentially being a problem. Do you think that this the culture is really changing in a positive direction, or do we still have quite a quite a bit to to do still,
3: yeah. Well, it's a it's a really unfortunate dynamic. So media and commentators and the members of the public jump to simplistic, you know, causal conclusions around um, social disorder and crime. Uh, ethnicity is largely an inaccurate and blanket, stereotypical causal factor that people jump to. That leads to biased approaches um, and. Biased approaches is bad policing. So, uh, uh, what we saw back in 2006 with uh, Operation Malto was where there was a um, uh, small amount of um, street robberies that were uh, undertaken by African young people. What happened there was the entire community was deliberately and systematically targeted. Young people were stopped on a wholesale industrial level throughout Flemington, North Melbourne, and the inner west, and we'd like to make we'd like to think that we've progressed since that that uh, policing needs to be targeted evidence based uh, people who break the law need to be targeted by police not people who share their ethnicity and so um, hopefully policing is getting better we're seeing good signs particularly from the command level but policing on the streets still seems to um, target people of ethnicities, of certain ethnicities disproportionately. And it's not only bad policing, it's bad for, um, it's, it's unlawful, but it also destroys trust and social cohesion.
0: Anthony Kelly's with us. He's with the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre, the Police Accountability Project there. And, Anthony, I mentioned at the beginning that um, that much interest in whether you, able, you are able to film when you're interacting with police or film um, interactions with police and, and other people. And a lot of it has... Um, those questions have come from that very distressing and very powerful film that Diamond Reynolds um, took in the aftermath of her uh, the shooting of her boyfriend in the u.s by police and the confidence and the uh, how articulate she was in that film is quite extraordinary and your sort of 10 point um dot point online um that that says using your phone as an accountability tool is that part of developing some of that confidence in other people stay calm hold your arm steady you do have a right to, to film are you trying to engender a, a sense of confidence in in people um by, by by showing them how to do it i suppose
3: yeah absolutely a lot of people find themselves in that situation filming as a third party an incident it's very scary uh, a few basic tips can go a long way into uh, making that footage incredibly useful in a court if it came down to um uh, if it came down to that as being used as evidence so yeah, yeah, we are, we do encourage people to remain calm, collectors to focus on the filming. If that's if they've come across an incident as a third party, um, and they've got their mobile phone ready and there's enough batteries in it, then that that could be the most important role at the time. So um, that's something we encourage to do, and, and hopefully we'll see um, more accountability through uh, the you know the ability to of ordinary people to take evidence
2: well, what should people do with the footage ultimately do you think anthony i mean is it a good idea to put it up on on social media and and share it do you think
3: um look, that, that's a hard question it's mm. really hard case by case there's the privacy of the person affected to consider so that would be the one of the considerations that i'd be most worried about whether the person who was um the victim of Alleged police misconduct wanted their footage, wanted their image to be all over the internet. Um, it's probably most advisable to take it to a community legal centre or a solicitor um, and to have that footage uh, looked at in the context of a, compl- of a possible formal complaint.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today and we can direct people to your website and um, Anthony um, is a lawyer and um, he is with the Flemington and Kensington Community Legal Centre and I suppose if you want any more information then you can consult a community legal centre yourself or you can head up to their Police Accountability Project website and we can put links up on our Facebook account and on the R website. Thanks so much, Anthony. Good talking to you. Thanks very much. R with Kalia and Dylan and a lot is going on as I just said in PNG at the moment. The academic year has been suspended for some university students and the Prime Minister Peter O'Neill is set to face a vote of no confidence in the Parliament this coming Friday and last month uh, you might have heard that unarmed university students were shot at by police as they marched in support of a no confidence motion. Bell Karma is with the Lowe Institute and a PhD student with ANU where he's researching the relationship between the executive and the judicial arms of the government Government in PNG, and um, he writes beautifully and has written on this topic um, extensively. And Bel, it's really great to have you with Triple R, and I, I wonder if you can sort of bring us up to date with what's going on in PNG at the moment. It seems to be very dramatic times.
4: Yes, it is. Um, as you pointed out, there was a, a student protest, and then uh, now we have the. Uh, pilots and the uh doctors as well they're now also giving uh, the uh, uh prime minister warning that they will also go on strike and the uh pilots have actually gone strike uh, uh, last week so things have actually changed uh, quite a lot since the uh prime minister and the uh police decided to suit the students uh, uh, and, uh, As of last Friday, uh, there was a vote for no confidence being put to Parliament, so the Parliament will now sit in seven days to uh, uh, decide on that.
2: And so, this all began, um, if I'm correct, with allegations that Prime Minister Peter O'Neill had had siphoned off public funds for his own gain. Is that is that the case? Is that what sparked these protests?
4: Yes, Uh, in uh, 2014, the prime minister was alleged to be involved in a uh, corrupt deal with a law firm that about uh, $30 million uh, uh, from the government funds were put to that law firm. So that was the allegation, and the prime minister was uh, called by the police to come and answer the questions. He he refused. Uh, the police um, uh, tried to arrest him, and uh, he basically surrounded himself with um, uh, some section of the, of the uh, police as well. He ended he ended up uh, dismissing the uh, police commissioner, and so that has started from there, coming through that his sense of uh, uh, sense of uh, defiance has made the students and the pieces actually stand up now.
0: And, um, Belle, we're just getting a bit of um, interference on your line. Maybe if you sort of move it um, a little bit further away from from your mouth or in a different direction, sorry, hopefully we can get a better sound um, from you. Um, And and, uh, my understanding is that students in in PNG are absolutely admired um, in the community. They're seen as future leaders. Um, uh, Is the community on, on side um, with the students and, and the protests that they've been engaged with over recent months?
4: Yes, the students are seen as the light of their tribes and of their villages. So Papua New Guinea is a very diverse nation. And so these are, it is made up of nations in a nation. And those students coming from those villages and tribes become the light bearers. So whatever that they stand for and whatever that they, uh, they tell the people that this is the way, then the people seems to follow them because they see them as their knowledge bearers. And so when the student marched against the prime minister, yes, the people were willing to support them. And many towns across Papua New Guinea uh, actually stood up with the students.
2: And you've written on the Lowy Institute's uh, interpreter website about the the history of student activism in PNG and, and a range of other issues um, around this as well. Can you give us a little bit of a snapshot of of that trajectory and that, and that tradition of, of student protests in the country?
4: So student protests has always been a uh, one of the main political activist um, uh, uh, centre for for the last. Uh, uh, 40 years. Since Papua New Guinea got its independence in 1975, students have always stood up. And in uh, 2001, they did the same thing against a government then, uh, which has some policies that the student felt was against uh, this national interest of Papua New Guinea. And the government ended up, um, well the uh, uh, security um, uh, police and defense were implicated in what was uh what was accused to be a shooting of three students by them and 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 so the uh three students actually killed um when cops actually fired at them so uh there is this 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 is after those bloodshed said and uh all this history lined up students have always felt that it is their duty it is their duty to uh, stand up for the good of the nation and that could mean at the expense of the education and at the expense of their own security and welfare
0: and and has the academic year being cancelled for all students bell or is it only certain universities that are affected by the 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 sort of ending early of the academic year this time around
3: Uh,
4: So far, only one university, the uh, uh, University of Papua New Guinea, which is is Papua New Guinea's main state university. Uh, But there's also talk at the second university uh, down in Leh that um, uh, it it might be closed, but that's still not um, finalized yet. Now at that that university, as you may be aware, uh, about two weeks ago, one student was killed by by the student themselves they were having conflict uh which concerns the same issue. Uh, some were going against it and some were going for it. Um uh, uh, uh for them to have a strike and then um during that during that tension one student got killed. So uh yes so far during this protest and during this period tense period one student has lost his life. Uh, and and so that university the security and the tension there as well is also high.
0: And what does it symbolize when a university ends its academic year bell? what is this you know what what is the repercussion of that
4: That means that um, those students now who are in the university would be t- Uh, the the university would try to fit them back in next year. And the university has about 3,000 space. So the current university would, I mean, the current student would try to be fitted in. And and then those who are now completing the 11 and 12, or, I mean, who are completing their high school uh, to go to university, again, uh, you would have a lot of applicants now trying to get into the same space. But um, those who are in there now would be... Perhaps given their priorities, so you may have uh, their, their school leavers from next year uh, not ha- having a space in the uh, in the uh, 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 campus. So I think it will it will it will it will result in young people, frustrated young people, basically out on the streets, not having space in a university.
2: We're speaking. On, on the grapevine with Bel Karma, he's a PhD student and a contributor to Lowy Institute Publications, and he's written a lot about Papua New Guinea's current situation with students protesting uh, Peter O'Neill and, and the current administration. And what's, what's the ultimate effect of, I mean, both the university's abandoning of the academic year, but also now that pilots are on strike, is this ultimately leading to a lot of pressure being on, on Peter O'Neill to resign, or is that something that you don't will actually come to pass?
4: Yes, there is definitely pressure on Peter O'Neill. I think he hasn't expected that his defiance to the justice system of Papua New Guinea would result in citizens and the elite of citizens taking responsibility and standing up against him. Uh, last week, the pilots of Papua New Guinea have canceled their their, 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 their flights. They refused to fly. And uh, this week, starting this week, the Doctors' Association have also given the um, Prime Minister 21 days, so that means the doctors will not go to work if the Prime Minister refused to resign. And so the health um, health sector would be also in jeopardy. And the teachers have also shown um, their interest in, in taking part. So there is now a sense of ripple effect uh, from his defiance and the shooting of the students. As they... As a more responsible prime minister, he will and he must feel a sense of responsibility and do the right thing with the students and the people ask for him to step down and face his allegations. The leaders with him, um, those politicians with him, are also putting press on him because they felt that if they refuse to change the prime minister or if, if things doesn't change, then when the elections come next year, that people will also hold them Hold them responsible, and that will come at their own political cost as well. Um, so they—they, they, I think, are also putting pressure on him as we speak to make some uh, make some decision going forward in the best interest of the nation. And um, the- so what we will see? Sorry.
2: No, sorry. Continue.
4: I mean, what we will see play out uh, next Friday when they sit, uh, or I mean, this Friday when they sit for the. Uh, a vote of no confidence is potentially uh, uh, and i would think highly likely that the prime minister would be changed uh, by someone within the government rank at the moment uh, because the opposition may not have the numbers uh, as we speak but one day in politics is a very big thing and uh, many things can happen within a 24 hours time so uh, I think things will change, um, but who will become the prime minister? I am not really certain at this stage.
2: Mm, you're right; things can change can very quickly. Um, I wonder your perspective on Australia's role and responsibility in all this, because of course we've got a very long history of engagement with Papua New Guinea. It's a former former colony of Australia's, and we donate large sums of of money to the country and it was with Peter O'Neill that uh the Manus Island offshore processing detention facility was set up but I haven't heard much from the Australian government uh condemning the the shootings or or really claiming to or or trying to play a leading role in in changing that sort of um or, or addressing the corruption allegations at all is that a fair reading or do you see things differently
4: that is a very good question, and I think one that is of great interest to many who are also looking at these issues. Australia has traditionally been seen as an emblem of democracy, as a as a voice for human rights, and as a, and as an, uh, as a, as a country that speaks about good governance, and that anyone within the region who is uh, going sidetracked by Australia's suit and must stand up, and I think that citizens have that genuine expectation. Now, Australia has previously stood up issues in Papua New Guinea, but recently, and as you pointed out, the Manus Island deal, when it came in, uh, Australia has kept a, 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 a deafening silence. And when Peter O'Neill was first investigated and when he sacked the um, government ministers and when he accused the court of being politically compromised and so forth in uh, Uh, 2014, Australia was very silent. So there were questions raised as to why it was silent, and perhaps was to protect the man's interest. Now, now coming this far, and with the shooting and things happening now again in Papua New Guinea, Australia is still playing this uh, precautionary. Uh, sense of leadership. And I think people are increasingly becoming frustrated uh, with with this this, um, uh, silence. And I do understand that Manus Island is still on the table and perhaps Australia is uh, trying to play the game quite well so that Manus Island is not affected. But, you know, when you look at issues that are happening right now where lives are lost and... um, uh, people are being threatened, and I think human rights and good governance are highly at stake in this kind of situation. Um, Australia should, uh, I think, uh, play a bit more, bit more firmer role than um, uh, uh, just a spectator. And yes, many, many people have in Papua New Guinea, and especially those who uh, are intellectuals are raising concern uh, on, on Australia's silence at the States.
0: Belle, it's been really um, fantastic to have your insights today and it sounds like we need to get you back soon because, as we are saying, this week, this Friday, um, there will be that vote of no confidence um, happening in the, the PNG parliament and uh, a lot can happen, as you say, even in a day in politics. Um, so hopefully yes. we can get you back again soon.
4: No worries. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Bell Kama, he's a PhD student. Uh, he's a contributor to the Lowy Institute. He's a lawyer uh, and I think has some um, um, amazing and interesting insights into what's happening in PNG and politics at the moment. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.